Welcome to a Radio 191 FM podcast. In the studio with Flint Robson, in person, it seems to be a growing habit. Yeah, re- recurring uh, theme going on Despite here. living in different cities. Yeah, despite setting up the whole premise of season three as we're separated, we've actually been together, so. What makes it easy? It makes it easy for recording in our lovely studio that is the Radio 1 recording studio. Yeah, the, the booth, we're just in where all the live bands play next the green to the drum screen. kit. And the green screen, yeah, it's brilliant. Matt Flynn, science, man. It's been a quick minute. There's a lot of news to catch up on that yeah. we haven't been really taken down. I've, I've consumed none. I, I have no science news for the table today. So I hope you're pulling your weight, Ben, and well, a bit more because I've done nothing. Well, I have, a, I have a few. The main one being, and it's a real dagger because I, I love the Hubble telescope. It's gone offline. And uh, NASA are desperately in a struggle to try and figure out what is wrong. And um, how are they going to fix it? Did someone leave the lens cap on, Ben? Did they <laughs> try taking the lens cap off? I think they took the lens cap off a long time ago. So they're trying to figure it out. And obviously they've got the launch of the new telescope coming up. Yeah. And it's always going to put Hubble out obsolete anyways. But in the meantime, Hubble had like some really um, exciting spots that it was going to point towards. Yeah. It wanted a really good send off and it's just... And it's butchered itself. So, yeah. But it's good there's another one on the way. I'm excited for the new one, Flynn. I'm yeah. excited for the can new you, one. Can you give me any any uh, any information? Well, it's going to be it's much one. stronger and way more sensitive to um, light than the Hubble. And it's got a big net behind it that shields the sun's rays. So it casts like a shadow so it doesn't in- interact with the, the Whoa, lens. Oh, that's smart. So it's like an umbrella. If you imagine an umbrella it's and like the a- actual bit that protects you from the water is facing the sun and then the the stick thing that you hold is the, is the camera. So it's shielding a little bit yeah. of the sun's rays. Crazy. It's like a solar sailor. Oh, yeah, that's, that's from um, Treasure Planet. Yeah, that's the one. Um, I don't know how they're going to mechanize that. You can't really test it out and in, in, um, yeah, you don't really, you test don't it have, out before you go. You don't have a lot of zero gravity w- to work with on Earth, unfortunately. So I'm sure the smart minds at NASA have figured that, figured yeah. that one out. Mine's much smarter than us. They've thought about it for a lot longer than us. Yeah, no, they're, they're really good at that. Um, they're also the living fossil fish, Flynn. You know about that one? The Keolithanth uh, or Seolithanth? Oh, some, some Latin name. We're always going to butcher it. Um, they were thought to be extinct and they were in the fossil record and then someone fished them up. I think it was like a few, yeah, like was, 20 years ago. Yeah, and they um, thought, holy crap, this looks exactly like a fossil. <laughs> and it does. It really does. Yeah. Um, Is it 300 million years old or something? Ridiculous. It's way old. It's like the oldest fish ever. It, it's like the closest thing we have to like the original ancestor. Like well, the, to be called a living fossil, you must be. Yeah, you must be um pretty old. So it's um it's a lobed fin fish, and it grows to about two meters. Um, so it's it's a sizable fish, really slow growing. It um can live for a hundred years in the deep ocean in pretty much complete darkness. Do you reckon it gets a letter from the queen, or like I think it doesn't. Eh? Nah, I don't think the queen really cares about them too much. Nah, but she should. Old um uh, Charles is pretty interested in the whole. Save the planet thing. Yeah, oh, true. Actually, it's a big push for that. At the yeah, moment. let's let's not get on uh, monarchy politics 
in uh, Breathe of Science. But uh, yeah, no, they're, they're really interesting. They're interesting looking fish as well. Like, yeah, give them, give them the Google search up living fossil fish and you'll um, come up. And it brings up something. We're still finding stuff out about the ocean, yeah. even now. It's crazy. It is. Everyone says space is the final frontier, but we still still know absolutely nothing about the ocean well, and, the, and the bits of the ocean. I mean, there's uh, there's astronauts, but honestly, aquanauts are almost like the the frontier men and women of today, you know? Yeah. I mean, the old adage is like too late to explore the earth, born too early to explore the stars. But yeah, there's still there's like still heaps so of much on the... In the ocean, especially, like we've only looked at like five percent of the ocean seafloor. It's ridiculous. So there's 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 much. I mean, it's I, it's not exciting. I mean, it's not probably, romantic. We've probably, probably got plastic to about ninety five percent of the seafloor, though. All of it. Yeah, all of it. But you know, personally, haven't had a um, a wander around down there. What no. else have we got? Ben? Um, I'm, I'm we've got lit. no. Again, we've got like heaps of um, and then like uh, Ben Thick invertebrates from the deep ocean yeah they're being found every day like that is i'm i'm trying really hard not to talk about (laughs) the depressing news because there is a lot of it at the moment especially around the un releasing things about how crap the um great barrier reef is holding up after that did you see also there's a leaked draft of the ipcc report so that's like the un intergovernmental panel on climate change so every couple years they release a document on whatever it may be, land use, um, the 2.5 degrees warming was a big document they released. But um, yeah, they, they uh, a draft leaked and it's pretty much been like, hurry, hurry your bloody shit up because you, you're not doing enough, which I mean, we all knew, but uh, it's interesting for like the UN to actually like be like, hey, in the official documents, we're going to be like, this isn't enough, like needs to go now because I mean, there's... Um, probably I'd assume a lot of politics and bureaucracy going on with the UN's yeah, stuff. Yeah, I know. Um, I'll touch on it a bit later because I'm going to talk about something, something very similar. Just a disclaimer, we recorded this podcast a couple months back. The space race has occurred uh, and Basie Boy did return from space, unfortunately. But another one to do with climate change is commercialized space travel. Oh. Jeff Bezos has stuck his finger in the air and said, I'm joining Elon Musk. Yeah. I am and Virgin Galactic. I am going to space. Basie Boy wants to join the big boys the, rocket club. The, the billionaires rocket club. <laughs> yeah, the billionaires rocket club. And we touched on it. We touched on it a few episodes ago. It's it's a bizarre it's a it's a bizarre concept. Yeah. I'm and this is such an obsession with billionaires and, and the rocket club and commercialized space travel. It's just it it sounds good on paper and you're like excited for it because you're like oh yes the average joe can go to space but it won't be the average joe yeah the average joe won't go to space the average joe will have to put up with all the crap that comes from sending millionaires up to space and all the um climate based things because elon musk wanted to launch a rocket a minute yeah incredible way i like he is got his good things and he's got his bad things but i think this rocket obsession is just ridiculous. I mean, they all have it. They've all caught it. I'm hoping on bloody Bill Gates' life that he doesn't do, <laughs> do, do huge. He's mid-life. got potential to now go through a midlife crisis yeah. now that he's, <laughs> now now he's divorced. Divorce. And he just has a big 180 degree swing and he, he goes towards rockets. You know how like an old man or a man in his middle age might go through a uh, 
get a Harley Davidson or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if Bill Gates just goes through a, uh, by myself a couple rockets um, with a life rocket crisis. Phase. God. You know, ever since 2016, never say never. Yeah, the world's gone to up, up weird ways. Um, in terms of the Biden bunker, he's been on tour. He's yeah. come out of the bunker. Yeah, it's 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 the bunker road show, and like he's bringing all his all his buddy politics all the way to the lovely England. They've been out down in Dover, I think, or somewhere crazy. They were like, yeah, he's been, G- been meeting with meeting with Mister Boris. Yeah, it's been the G. Oh, yeah, popular man. Um, he's been going to the G seven summit. Is it the? I'm so out of touch with the politics at the moment. I but think it's the big boys club, the whatever boys it is. Club. It's yeah. the big boys club minus like whoever they're just deciding they don't like at the moment. So, so the, the usual suspects. Yeah, I think. I think I think China's there. I think Russia's like, nah, you just, you don't get to go. Yeah. I think it's like big boys club being like all Merkel and, and them. There is the EU. Yeah, Macron. Yeah. Whoa. Um, Because I'm going to talk about two things today. I'm gonna hit us with the less exciting, more monotonous man. It was um, I don't envy the people who did this study. I have to say, yeah. Well, um, you're hyping it up, man. What's what's the? So it was um, it was a study came out of Harvard, and um, it's hot off the press, and it's uh, they combed through all of Exxon Mobil's internal communications. Oh, and for those of you who don't know what Exxon Mobil, uh, Mobil is, it's like a big oil conglomerate. Yeah, so uh, I can't remember what it used to be called, but there used to just be one huge-ass um, oil company back in the day, um, and they were like, hang about, we can't do that. That's just, we need more oil companies. So they split it up into multiple oil companies, and one of the ones that got split into was ExxonMobil. And it's and it's a big one. So the study looked at internal communications um, from 1977 to 2014. Oh, juicy. Came juicy. out of came out of Harvard. Um, and I'm going to butcher the scientist's name, Jeffrey Sopran and um, Naomi Oriskes. You've tried. I've tried. An attempt was made. Um, and the, the title of the study is Rhetoric and Frame Analysis of ExxonMobil's Climate Change Communications. And okay. boy, did they find some interesting stuff on them. Oh, I'm excited. And I'll, I'll talk about the the study first, and then I'll talk about the wider implications because it goes on and exposes the oil industry a little bit for the I don't want to say grubby, but it right. is pretty grubby. It's pretty grubby work. Um, so yeah, they come through twenty years, so it's a lot, a lot. Like I could think of nothing worse. <laughs> and the main finding findings were is that Exxon Mobil kind of shifted the blame of climate change to consumers. They talked a lot in their ads about, or internally, about demands and needs, and they were very aware of what damage their products was doing to the environment. So they, the internal communications were like, oh, the climate change is this, this, this. Externally, they were like, whoa, we're not, we're not, the science isn't out. Yeah. We're not sure. Internally, they're like, ooh, the science looks like it might be out on this one. Yeah, so around, and then the study noticed around 2000, um, that the trend in the company's public-facing communications, so all their ads, like their Twitter, yeah. their advertising, um, began to um, shift towards how consumers can be more environmentally friendly through their consumption of energy. Yeah. Talking about how you limit your power use 
and all the stuff. And, yeah, it's and like the it's like oh, we we can't help that we're we're, we're getting all this oil, man. Yeah. You can't help that. So some direct direct quotes. Uh, be smart about how you use electricity. Um, heat and cool your home efficiently. Improve your gas mileage. So all these buzzwords, obviously, and it um, it really, I don't know. Rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. It, it Grease, shows, greased you up. It shows that they're really disingenuous and they're just greedy. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not shocking, to be honest, but no. it's just it. It's just nice to see it out in, in an article from Harvard. It's just in plain fact. They're bad boys. And it's, and it's big money for them. They're big yeah. money. And they will throw money at these things oh, to yeah. make them go away. I don't know if you know, Flynn, but um, you know the word carbon footprint? I do know the word carbon footprint. Do you know where that comes from? Um, well, I don't know, but I'm assuming it has something to do with it. BP created it. Really? In 2004, they termed the word carbon footprint to try and shift blame away from them to, consumers. to consumers. Yeah, because companies can't walk. They don't have feet. Yeah. And so, consumers, you're bad. You've got feet. You can treat all that carbon all through the bloody carpet. No one can yeah. get it out. Not so those companies. It's, it's, it shows that they've done nothing for it. Yeah. They've been aware of it. They've been very aware. Of it. They've been probably more aware than most of the general public. Yeah, they're, they're the most aware been. Yeah. And um, yeah, it kind of harps back to 20 firms around the world are responsible for one third of all pollution. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty- Which is a de- depressing state. And that's both state and investment owned firms. So yeah. some of them are state owned. And I don't know how that plays in with the climate accord. Yeah, I mean, the thing is also, um, oil's not owned by companies, it's owned by states. So, like, these big companies are making the money from it, but at the end of the day, states own, like, all the oil. Like, countries own the oil, not the states. I don't know if that makes sense. So, like, the companies are making all the money, but the people who are going to lose out from oil are the countries because the companies pay to to those to get that oil access. So like, bloody the politicians know better, Ben. No, they do know better. And and and, and the list is full with your usual suspects: your your Chevron, your BP, <laughs> your X Exxon Mobil, who yeah. we just talked about. And number one is a Saudi company, a state-run Saudi company. It's not and surprising. They are miles ahead in terms of pollution than any other company. Really? Yeah. They're, they're significant for sure and it's a big issue in the states especially and a lot of third world countries with mining rights i've i've noticed yeah. they'll come in and it and it and they always the politicians always term it as oh it's good for the community i think there was a study in the states and it found that actually when they were doing plutonium mining um the american people actually lost out by like a dollar Really? Yeah, so they lost money. Everyone in that community lost a dollar because they had to clean up all this waste that was left behind by these mining companies. Yeah. All this toxic sludge and everything. There's so much crap everywhere from energy processes. Like, it's a huge issue. It's like another benefit of renewables is like the bloody mess, like pollution as well as like climate pollution. So it's like your, your greenhouse gases and stuff like that. Another thing is just the bloody mess of like- Energy mining, the refining things, and and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, not even not even just the climate um, change affecting pollutants, but just like all the other toxic crap. And it's something that I'd never thought about. It was like, oh, it's good. It's short term good. 
like it's it's pretty good short term. Like there is, I mean, the cash is going up the chain, and there's not going to be much trickle down. But at yeah. the end of the day, it's the people in the community who lose out. You can see that in like Flint, Michigan, with the fracking, and you can light your freaking water on fire. Yeah, I've 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 while we've been talking about these um, greasy boys, I've searched up. Um, I'm trying to work out who that big oil conglomerate was, and it was um, old Rockefeller's Standard Oil has given birth to Exxon Mobil, Shell, Chevron, BP. God, is there anything else? I think, God, yeah, man, it's. They've done a good job there <laughs> covering the bases. So just that one company has spawned multiple even multiple worse companies. Evil, 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 maniacal companies that are really disingenuous and are really greedy and they're I hope they get held accountable in the history books. Yeah. I mean I hope history is not kind on them. Yeah. I mean, have you have you seen that uh, at the moment? One of the big things of that G7 summit is holding multinationals account- accountable by taxing them. Oh, surprise. Yeah, surprise. surprise. Governments, government's like, oh, we're missing out on some money. Maybe we could all band together and do it. So it's I think a crazy amount of money. The next- Jeff Bezos claimed like income benefit. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was like two and a half grand he claimed. And it was like, what? Why, why, why do you need that? Um, and pe- make sense. people always bang on about um, Bezos. Oh, it's all in his net worth. Like it's all, all just his stonks. Like he can't, he can't actually have that money, mate. He went through a divorce, and his wife's given out like billions of dollars already. Like Jeff Bezos can lose some of that money. It's not all tied up in stonks. Bloody, his wife is now like one of the richest people in the world, just happily giving away billions to charity. It's a ridiculous premise. I don't. I, I feel like society broke down as soon as they're billionaires. It doesn't. No one needs that much money. Yeah, it I, is. A, it's ridiculous. To, it's impossible to spend it. It's a they ridiculous. Could never try it. It's not even possible. Yeah, but they want that fifth yacht, Flynn. They want that fifth yacht desperately, oh. desperately, and they'll squeeze everyone for. Well, it's just a round number, Ben. Fifty is so much better than forty-nine. <laughs> oh, you know, like gross, some man. of the marinas, like. You know, their capacity is 50. It'd be nice to fill up the marina with another super yacht, you know? It's ridiculous. It really grinds my gears. I get pissed off at multinationals oh. being disingenuous. Oh, that's fair. Um, so I'm pissed off a lot. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I, I, we hate big oil anyway. It's one of our, our go-tos of the, the bad boys club. Yeah, I'm just are. creating a couple clubs here this episode. <laughs> they're, um, yeah, they're trouble. And, it's, and it's, I think it's good to push it into the mainstream. Because I feel like they get away with flying under the radar far too much. Yeah, with their, with their ad campaigns and oh yeah, and like you do one rebranding, your shell, and you one rebranding to Z for New Zealand, and like everyone forgets that they're like one of the worst companies ever, and they think that they're some sort of like New Zealand. It's not New Zealand owned. What Z for New Zealand? What? Come again? <laughs> yeah, my God. <laughs> Um, they just think we're really gullible, and we probably are. Yeah, probably are. We've, they've got away with it for so long. I think the classic was BP. Soon as they had the Mexican oil spill, it was oh no, we're not BP. We're British Petroleum. They hadn't been called British, British Petroleum, Petroleum in years. years. Yeah, but it was British Petroleum, not BP, who did that. Yeah, because it's a mouthful to say the British Petroleum Mexican oil oh, spill. This is themselves. You're like British Petroleum. That can't be BP. No. That can't be. No, right, it's very British. Yeah, so I, I, that really summed it up, I think. Summed up. You were going to talk about some chemistry. 
Yeah, well, I guess- Getting, getting your degree out there, plugging it. Yeah, I thought, you know, I'm currently unemployed. Um, big changes since uh, episode one, which wasn't that long ago. I'm no longer doing my master's. Um, I'm just currently looking for jobs. But uh, while I'm looking for jobs, I think maybe I could use my chemistry degree once in a while. Um, and I thought, I studied quite a bit of chemistry, but I haven't really studied like the history of chemistry. I don't think I've done that since like high school. Like, you know, who discovered this or discovered what? You know, you learn all these theories and stuff, but you kind of get lost. And there's this little false narrative that's told in science that science just became a thing because all these great men had these eureka moments one after another, and it's it's just dead not true. Well, we've talked we've talked about a few. Few gripes, yeah, and doing doing them justice. You did a great. Um, this is plugging last season. If if you're really interested in some um, bios, um, Ben's done a couple biopics. Oh, not biopics, bio, bio oh. audio, whatever yeah, they whatever, are, whatever it is called. Um, on some great people who flew under the radar in sci- science in Ben's field, which is more like um, ecology, um, biology, yeah, conservation. <laughs> um, I thought I better pull up the slack, and I. I need to I need to show my my wares my wares of chemistry. So I thought I'd hit um, one one person who flew under the radar and one person who got recognised. They both have the same name. Um, so the first one you are uh, well, not the first. One, I'm going to start with the the other one. But one you'll know is Marie Curie. Which I, is, I don't uh, think I do know Flynn. So could you please refresh me? Okay, so she's the first. Um, how about we just start with Marie Curie and then I'll go on to the one that you don't know about. Okay. Um, well, in your case, <laughs> you don't, I don't know, know both of them. Um, so Marie Curie is the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. The f- this is going to be a long um, list of accolades. The first person and the only person. Um, no, not the only person. Oh, maybe. The first person and only woman to win a Nobel Prize twice. And the only person to win the Nobel Prize in two different scientific fields. Okay. On top I, of that, I do know this lady. I do know it. I do know it. On top of that, she became the first woman to become a professor at the University of Paris, which she did in 1911. So Marie Curie was born in Warsaw in 1867, um, and her dad was a mathematics and physics teacher at the local, the local school, secondary school. Um, but unfortunately, Poland was going through a bit of a, a problem. It was invaded by the Russian Empire. And the Russians decided, uh, nah, let's just not teach them physics and maths or any laboratory, um, any laboratory processes because, you know, they don't need to know that. They just need to know the Russian national anthem will be sweet. So poor old um, Mary Curie's dad um, had to take all his science equipment home. He was still teaching maths and, and theoretical physics, but they didn't do any laboratory work. Um, so he brought all his instruments home. And Marie was really interested in maths and physics. Like, that's what she wanted to do. Because her dad's a bit of an ace, a bit of a gun um, with the old science stuff. Um, so she's there playing around with all this laboratory equipment at, like, age 8 to 12. She continued to study after high school. But the one thing she found it was difficult because being a woman, many of the institutions didn't accept any woman in higher education. Um, so she enrolled in an underground institution. So during this time that the Russians occupied Poland, they sort of dissolutioned all the institutions and stuff, and they got rid of a lot of the curriculum that, like, you know, the Polish really wanted, and, like, there were a lot of people being left uneducated, so they created an underground university, 
which is pretty bloody awesome. That sounds epic, eh? Um, so she studied part-time at the underground university. I don't think it was actually underground, but you know what I mean. And then at the same time, she worked as like a governess, like looking after children and stuff. But all she cared about was was studying. Like she's a bit of a bit of a smarty. Um, she had more brains than you and I combined, Ben. Um, it's not saying a lot. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. It's not really saying a lot. Um, so after years of saving money and doing some informal study at the underground university, uh, she moved to Paris, where she enrolled at the University of Paris in late eighteen ninety one. Um, in eighteen ninety three, she, she was awarded a degree in physics, and then eighteen ninety four a second degree. Um, so she's already got uh, enough degrees between you and me to make us look like fools. <laughs> And she's still studying, but she met some dude after this and they were keen to start a life in Poland. She was like, I want to go back to Poland. I want to teach my kids like Polish, like we're going to hack Poland. Like I don't really care for Paris that much. Um, But a letter from her mate Pierre, who she'd met, who just doctored up. He's just got his big big PhD um, and he was a professor, just got his professorship as well. He convinced her to return to Paris and study for her PhD. Um, which she did, ditched the other dude, and they got married on the 26th of July in 1895. And then from then on, she found not only her marital partner, but her academic partner. They just worked, teamwork this out. Um, they hacked it well. Yep. So, oh, yeah. Um, in After the discovery of X-rays in 1895, uh, Marie decided to look into uranium rays as a possible field of study for her thesis that she was now going to do for her PhD. Pierre had developed 15 years earlier an instrument to measure electric charge, and she thought she could use that um, to test radioactive samples because radioactivity is like in its infancy. People are like, whoa, there's stuff going on with this, this material, but we're not sure what's going not sure on. sure what it is, um, but there's something there. <laughs> yeah, something's crazy going on. So she hypothesized that the radiation was not the outcome of some interaction between molecules, which is what you'd sort of expect, um, but must come from the atom itself. Um, and this hypothesis was a very important step in chemistry overall um, in disproving the assumption that atoms were indivisible. Um, so the Curies didn't have a dedicated laboratory. They actually did most of their research in a converted shed off the side of a building which had very poor ventilation and was not waterproof. And they're looking at radioactive substances. And, and, she, and she won two Nobel Prizes. My um, God. And, and the other thing is they were sadly unaware of the effects of radiation exposure. So, and we can now look back on it and be like, wow, like they were so exposed and they weren't doing any predictive equipment. But I mean, they, they were the people who were sort of on the edge of science discovering it. But her first Nobel Prize that she won in physics was in recognition of the extraordinary services they had rendered when they helped discover the radiation phenomena, which was also discovered by Henry Bequerel. Bequ- I'm going to this. Um, Bequerel. Um, so they, they assisted him in the discovery. So they all jointly won their first, which was in physics. So not only did she get one, but her second Nobel Prize was in chemistry, and this was awarded in recognition of his services to the advancements of chemistry and the discovery of elements radium and polonium by isolation of radium and the study of nature and compounds in this remarkable element. Pretty much, she discovered the element, was able to 
get trace amounts, stuff that we struggle to do today, and was able to measure that it was radioactive. And a lot of these, because it's radioactive, they have half-lives. So they're slowly decaying into different elements. So like to discover an element, some of them only exist for like a certain amount of time. And that that can range from yeah, like years to, to seconds. Yeah. Like they're still discovering elements today, which are just like fractions and fractions of a second that are stable. But yeah, so Murray was obviously a trailblazer in chem, but also just for f- woman in STEM. Like before, and just in life, just so many just, hurdles. Well, gen- generally, yeah, she sort of set the benchmark really for like what's achievable. Like for a lot of like before her, like for a lot of women, it was inconceivable you could even go to higher education, let alone be a professor. Um, she founded a couple institutions at universities. Uh, the University of Paris built a whole, um, I think it was radiation laboratory because they were afraid she was going to leave to a rival university. She was in such high regard, but she's also really humble. Albert Einstein, no less, just remarked that she was probably the only person who could not be corrupted by fame. That so is very high praise, eh? She'd become one of the most famous scientists, and on her being awarded the first Nobel Prize, she didn't even go to the presentation ceremony. She was probably working too hard. Yeah, no, that was the reason. They were too busy working. What so a lady. What a lady. And then um and then they also afterwards they received the first two Nobel Prizes. After that, they no longer accepted awards in their name and only under institutions. Do you know how many more they won under those pseudonyms? I'm or not like- I'm not sure how many they won. But I mean you can go look it up and it's sort of like the awards sections on Wikipedia or something like that. Or um, there'll be some academic websites that have a list of achievements. Um, there'll be tons. Honestly, absolute heavyweight. Um, and she's she's the Marie that everyone knows when you say Marie from chemistry. Um, I mean, I, I had a mind blank and forgot, but I definitely yeah. I definitely read up on this this lady. And so that was that was the person I knew when I was listening to a podcast and they're talking about Marie and Pierrette. Pulse. And I was like, who? I was like, is this not Marie Curie? Wait, hang about. This isn't who I thought it was. And then I found out that she goes by another name, which was Marie Lavoisier. And I was like, maybe I've heard of that name before. But what I had actually heard was the name Antoine Lavoisier. And he's one of the founding fathers of chemistry. So he's one of the he's one of the big dogs. Yeah. The OG um, boys yeah. up there with Darwin and He's been credited with pretty much making the field from a pseudoscience into like a proper science field, field. The field of chemistry or the field of radiology. Yeah, it, it was pretty much considered alchemy until he revitalized it all and disproved a lot of the theories that were going around. And Marie and Lavoisier was the wife of Antoine Lavoisier. And I was like, why have I never heard of this woman before? And unfortunately, she falls under a long list of women who have been working in partnership with men in science fields and on the breaking, um, on the edge of of discovery, but has been given zero credit because of the times women weren't supposed to be allowed to to be doing that sort of research. And, you know, so dogmatic. And those are the ideas of great men, you know. You know, how would a woman have thought that? Um, 
when I think the story of uh, Marie uh, Lavoisier sort of completely disproves that. And she's she's one of the sort of early ones in terms of the field of chemistry. Um, but it's just a long list. So I'll, I'll talk about her for a second because I think she's almost more important, if you can believe it, than Well, I'm Marie about to Curie. find out. I'm about to find out. So um, born Marie and Perriette Polze in January 1758, so a while ago, in the Loire region of France, her father was a lawyer and a tax collector. Or he was, he was kind of like a range of things, but pretty much he was a tax collector in France. And her mother, Claudine, died quite early in 1761. Um, and her father was, he was a pretty smart man and um, he was a, quite a strong atheist when at the time France was quite religious. And her mother was um, Catholic, but she died. And after that, Marie decided that she was also atheist. Um, and so after her mother's death, she was placed in a convent where she received her formal education. So that's like a religious school. So they did maths um, and writing and a lot of uh, lot of sort of important education skills. Usually it's got to do with um, sort of religious teachings in a way. But I think she really just took the the essential education that she needed from it because she, she wasn't very religious herself. Um, at the age of 13, she res- received a marriage proposal from a 50-year-old count, um, the Count de Armivel. Um, her dad was like, um, surely not. <laughs> he's, he's 50. Um, and he, he had a bit of a reputation as a scumbag. Um, at the time, pretty much um, what was happening in France was all the, yeah, all the nobility were out of money. All the nobility who had titles had no money, and there was all this new mo- money floating around. Um, so she came from quite a wealthy family. So this guy was like, oh, I just might marry up just a rich, non-titled woman. And Probably just, expecting a bit of a dowry yeah, as well. Yeah, that's exactly what it, what they're up to. So pretty much all these old blokes who just have no money are out there trying to marry a 13-year-old woman. Great time. That's uh, You can't really hear the sarcasm. Terrible time. And her father was like, no, that's just not on. Um, so instead he asked one of his workmates... He was like, hey, like, would you be interested in marrying her? Because she's getting a bit of attention from this 50-year-old dude. Um, he's like, oh, sure. <laughs> That'll work. Um, and the person that he'd asked was Antoine Lavoisier. Um, he was 28 at the time. Um, so still a, still a horrific, bit of a horrific age gap between 13 and 28, um, but quite a bit better than 50. And he was quite upper class, and he used his bank that he had uh, to be a scientist, he worked sort of in some sciencey jobs, but pretty much he was just old money, um, and he used that to do his interests. Um, so when they married, they also got even more bank because because uh, uh, Marie was quite quite well off. Um, and after that, he really he really started getting into into the chemistry thing. He constructed a makeshift lab and started doing his own experiments at home. Um, and Mary was pretty interested in what was going on, and she was quite educated herself, and she was like, well, I can do this. This is, you know, pretty interesting stuff. Why don't I just do this? Um, so they just decided, much like uh, the last Marie and Pierre, that uh, they're just going to be a couple, and they're just going to hack it out. Not Science only they, the hell out of it. Yeah, not only are they life partners, but uh, they're lab partners. Uh, she started to receive some formal training from some of Lavoisier's science colleagues, 
um, just to give her a background in the science. Um, but she was pretty smart and took up to it pretty well. Um, they spent most of their time in the lab as well, working as the team. They hardly ever did any time alone working in the lab. And Marie did some pretty important shit, to be honest. One of the really important things that she did was translated the works from other scientists to Antoine, because he didn't speak English. And most of um, what was going on was being published in English, um, or in German and then to English. So he, he couldn't read the studies and critique them. And she spoke three languages. She spoke Latin, French, and English. So she just was like, all right. So not only did she translate it, but as she translated works, she would critique it, adding footnotes and um, pointing out what was wrong with the chemistry and the theories as she went along. And pretty much this is this is what helped um, her husband get all his fame, to be honest. like His discoveries were on the basis of the critiques of other works. Um, she was also hugely important in the fact that she learned how to draw. It just happened by the most famous painting uh, painter of the time, which was Jacques-Louis David. Um, and she learned to illustrate scientific diagrams. So all the diagrams in all the work is her illustrations. <laughs> Antoine happened to, because he happened to be a tax collector, um, got caught up in the reign of terror after the French Revolution. Um, and his head ended up uh, severed from his body um, via a guillotine. Um, so unfortunately, his science career was cut tragically short. Um, however, Marie then curated all his works um, and wrote them up and illustrated them. And her work in publishing them um, is how most of his theories became so monumental. And she was one of the people who pushed for him being recognized for being such a pivotal figure. Yeah, and and one of the big theories that they disproved, which really sort of set a foundation for the four chemistry as a field, is they used to have this idea by George Stahl, which was the uh, phyl- I'm going to get this wrong, uh, phlogiston theory, which was that um, all materials that burnt had a phlogiston particles in it, which they that allowed it to burn, and things that didn't burn didn't have phlogiston particles in it. Um, and they pretty much just went methodically around disproving that. And that's maybe the biggest thing that they disproved because um, it led to the discovery of oxygen as a gas and also how things burn, just the process of burning. Um, they also worked out respiration, that, um, that you're breathing in oxygen and releasing carbon dioxide, a different gas. They pretty much set up uh, chemistry as a field. The other thing that uh, she was really well known for is that she was diligent at maintaining laboratory standards, records, um, and preparing it within the scientific method. So she pretty much set the rule book on how to, how to, um, how to prepare a lab. Um, and I, I think I, I was quite amazed by how little she is referenced within the literature of history. Um, of how chemistry came to be a field. Man, what an incredible lady to overcome everything of the time and then to go on to do that is like, man, it's pretty incredible. So I just thought- What drive? They they both were French women sharing the same first name um, and one was decorated with two Nobel Prizes and the other one is hardly ever mentioned. 
I'd say a miscarriage, a miscarriage of scientific history. Yeah. Anyway, I hope it did them justice. Um, I definitely think if you're interested, like search more into it, especially with Curie, like her work is insane. Um, I think she passed away because her radiation illness um, of cancers um, because of her exposure. Um, and there's more to her story. There's more to both stories if you're interested, if anyone's interested. But um, yeah, just thought that was like, I thought I'd add a, a bio for uh, for the series. Hell yeah. What two interesting bios. Man, yeah. I've, science sucks at times. Eh? Science yeah. really sucks at times. They they like to, we, we always talk about standing on the shoulders of giants, but most of the giants have penises, to be honest. In in the in the back catalogue of history, um, they do a very very poor job of recognizing um, like women who've who've contributed so much to scientific discovery and history. Even even in recent years, there were all the the calculators who worked at NASA. Yeah, all the female calculators who who don't even get a mention. I think it's I think it's something that like. It's really hard for historians now because there's been so much rewriting of history. To it's been washed over. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it takes a lot of digging for these historians to come back and be like, whoa, like they literally rewrote history to write out all these incredible women doing all these like crazy um, complex tasks and like overcoming so much. Yeah, societal pressure. And then even like to go on to do something amazing is like yeah it's incredible i mean they've done some of the greatest achievements in scientific discovery and half of them get credited to their husbands it's pretty pretty crazy yeah it's it's yeah you can't really say anything it's it's the other it's how it's been the other thing i've left out is both these women have multiple children and raised multiple children while being like badass sciences at the same time incredible yeah, and I mean, these guys probably didn't do any of the jobs around the house either. So I imagine these women were working like, not only doing all the work in the lab, but all the work in the home. Incredible. And doing all the back cataloging and things and like yeah, that. And yeah, especially um, Lavoisier, like, I think for a lot of it, like, the illustrations are almost as, imp- and diagrams, almost as important as the content, because that's how you communicate, us as science communicators know it's like that's how you communicate ideas. Yeah, man. Interesting. The radioactive one is interesting as well. The whole use of radon for like everything. It kind of went a bit crazy there for a little bit. Mm. It's like a it's a serious interesting history um radioactivity and I mean um we have our own Ernest Rutherford within that sort of sphere of um atomic um and particle physics and um radioactivity, but it's just a it's a crazy, crazy story in science history. Yeah, there was a big phase there. You'd get radioactive plates that glowed. Yeah. Oh. Used in everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and incredible. I've I've got one more thing to talk about, and it's a bit more a lighter note, because t- talking about how everything is and how shit it is, is oh, drives me insane sometimes. yeah. 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 You become a real pessimist. Yeah, I I have noticed with you, man. It's always like <laughs> doom gloom. Like, yeah. So, it's more of an interesting one. <laughs> more of an interesting one here that I got. I actually got it from a TikTok. 
believe oh, it or not. Lovely. And I, and I did, I did some digging afterwards and dug up the papers. Um, I don't know if you know, Flynn, but um, bees can actually time, tell the time extremely accurately. Extremely accurately. No. <laughs> I've, well, I've never asked a bee what the time was, but I, you know, I don't doubt you. So, so it was a series of studies. It was of hot contention, and I'll, I'll explain why. Was, was this the one where they put it on, like, down at the bottom of, like, a mining thing? You'll find out, Flynn. Oh, I'm You'll excited. So, um, yeah, it was a series of studies originally started in Germany and then carried out by a few people over the years. Um, it's a really simple premise. It's a real simple premise. Um, you put sugar water outside a hive every day at the same time. In this case, it was 4 p.m. So they did this, and then after a while, um, the bees learned to leave the hive every day at 4, even if there was no sugar water present. So that so they were they were yeah. getting accustomed to it with their rhythm and being like oh it's feeding time. Um, so soon enough the bees learned to leave the hive every day at the same time, whether or not there was sugar there or not, sugar water there or not. So at four p.m. it was like a dinner bell. It's like oh, might be time to go have a look if that sugar water's there. Um, so it came back. It was pretty comprehensive that bees were getting accustomed to a certain time was feeding time. Yeah, but then everyone was like, well, hang about. Aren't they using the angle of the sun to figure out the time? Yeah, I mean, they're using they external could. things. It's not an internal thing. It's got to be an external thing. Yeah. So, um, well, I don't know how you'd, you you haven't got a bloody stopwatch in your <laughs> league. I don't know how yeah. the bee's going to be. Yeah, telling the time pretty accurately. Yeah, it's got to so be. It's got to be something else. So they thought, well, it's got to be the sunlight. It's got to be the angle of the sun because it makes sense. Bees live outside. They're they're active during the day. So they did the experiment in the dark, and every day at four, the bees came out, and everyone was like, well. Come on now, they must be uh, using the heat of the sun. You know, yeah. gets warmer in the late afternoon. You're waking up time to time to get get that sugar water. Yeah. So um, they decided to do it in a salt mine. <laughs> yeah. And Flynn, I tell you what, this is what I've heard. At four p.m., the bees were out again. Incredible, incredible. So then they thought, well, there was a bit of back and forth. Um, and um, they had their doubts. They're like, what well, if they're measuring the rotation of the Earth? It's got to be that. Yeah. So, it they set like, up the experiment again. It well, sounds like they're clashing at straws here. They set up the experiment in Paris. And they ran it for a few days, and then they shipped the bees. I don't know how they did it with border security. Shipped them to New York. <laughs> and I tell you what, Flynn, at 10 a.m., the bees came out. So, what does that mean? It means that bees can do tell the can perceive time and... They also get jet lag because at 10 a.m. in New York, it's 4 p.m. in France. That's incredible. <laughs> so they can perceive time super accurately and no one is quite sure how they do it. These That's small, awesome. seemingly, we know, Flynn, we're a fan of these, seemingly insignificant insects can tell the time super accurately and no one exactly knows why. I love bees. That. Because you would say you'd evolve a less complicated system for it. You'd be like, well, it's got to be the sun. Well, yeah, all those, all those other ones seem like very good hypothesis for yeah. what it would be. And that also breaks down to the scientific method. Yeah. You, you answer one question and there's always something else. And people ask that question of you and you have to go on and disprove it. And that's how science works. Yeah. So I thought it was a, it's a very good story. Eh? 
Yeah. It was a great TikTok I stumbled upon. Yeah, I think I've seen that as well. Because I, I remember the bees being put at the bottom of salt mine. I thought, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's ridiculous. They won't be able to tell the time down there. Yeah. But they did. Incredible. I thought it was funny that they get jet lag. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. I love these. Bees are certainly up there with one of my favorite we're, favorite, we're favorite bee animals. Bee leavers on, um, on Breather Science. And we have been for multiple seasons. Don't get us wrong. We've we're, talked uh, about them a lot. We've talked about them a lot. We're long-time bee leavers. Um, yeah, they're certainly- Incredible. They're certainly really, even though they're, they're pretty well, I don't know, they're, held in high rapport, I still think they're underrated. Oh, yeah. And yeah. And as, especially with their role in the ecosystem. Pivotal. <laughs> What a free service to get. Yeah. Imagine if you had to go around your orchard and pollinate everything by hand. Well, I mean, they're having to do that where the ecosystem's breaking down. Yeah. I mean, bees will do it for free and you'll get something to sell afterwards. Incredible. A thankless job. A thankless job. And they can tell the time. Bees are givers, man. They just keep giving. Never ask for anything in return. Just a bit of, bit of sunshine and some flowers. Mate, that's all we all, yeah. that's all we all want. That's the simple, simple life to bees. Simple pleasures. Now in trouble. Um, we all know that. Yeah. No. On a on a slightly more morbid note, as per usual, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Spin it because it's important. I think a lot of people just assume things are all right. Yeah. And I don't like to be the bearer of bad news, but I I bared a lot of bad news in the field I'm you, studying. You have bared a lot of bad news, especially to the Breathe Science podcast. Yeah. No, I tried last season to lighten it up and do some um when I stumbled across them some bio biographies. But yeah, hit us up. Tell us what you want to hear because we'll, um, we'll talk for hours about things we're passionate about, but we want to hear what you guys are passionate about, want to hear about. Yeah. Well, well, well let's, let's um, plug our socials. We hardly ever do that. We're on Instagram. We're, are we Breather Science on Instagram? We are Breather Science on Instagram. Breather, breather underscore science. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And then we're the Science Breathers on Twitter. I'm, a, I'm an absolute avid tweeter, so just get on Twitter. Um, um, yeah, but flick us a message. Oh, we're also on Facebook. So oh, flick yeah, us a message on, on Facebook. Facebook or Instagram. Or tweet at us. Or tweet at us and tell us what you want to hear. If you've got something interesting you want to want us to look into. Or just DM us or whatever. Yeah. Or come up to um, us in the street or at yeah, Pine, at Pine it, 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 It's the way it seems to work. Because um, we love your input and we love sharing science with everyone. And we want to share everyone's science with everyone, not necessarily just our fields. Yeah. So if you have an idea, let us know. Yeah. Thank you very much for tuning in, guys. We'll catch you in the next one. to a Radio 191 FM podcast. There are heaps more at r1.co.nz.